Welcome to the Community Church Podcast. This is the eighth week of our series called Family Misconceptions. This week, Pastor Mike will be teaching from Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 4. If you'd like to take notes, there's a link for that in the show notes. Thanks for joining us, and without further ado, here's Pastor Mike. Well, let me start by telling you two stories, two related stories. The first is the story of someone named Lieutenant Commander Butch O'Hare. Uh, he was a fighter pilot that was assigned to the Lexington in the South Pacific in the early days of World War II. One day uh, in February of 1942, his entire squadron was sent out on a mission. But after he was airborne, he looked at his uh, fuel gauge and he realized that someone had forgotten to top off his fuel, uh, fuel, uh, you know, uh, his fuel tank. And he realized that he didn't have enough fuel to be able to complete the mission and make it back to the aircraft carrier. So he told his flight leader, his flight leader told him to return to the carrier. So he dropped out of formation and started heading back. But on his way back, he saw something that, that literally put his blood cold, blood cold. There was a squadron of Japanese bombers that were headed directly for the fleet. And he knew that many, the majority of the American fighters were now on sorties that were actually attacking. So the fleet was virtually defenseless. He could, didn't have long-range radios yet. It was early in the war. He couldn't radio the fleet to tell them or warn them. He couldn't call his squadron back to call them back in to help. Um, you know, so he did the only thing he knew how. He laid aside all thoughts of personal safety and said, okay, well, I've got to attack and somehow try to you know, redirect this formation away from the carrier. And so he plowed in with his guns blazing and, and attacked one plane and then turned and t- attacked another plane. When he weaved in and out of the Japanese formation, you know, firing his guns until he is out of ammo. And then he continued the attack. He continued literally taking his plane in, trying to to clip a a wing or a tail or somehow damage the plane that he could somehow distract these Japanese away from their bombing run. And it worked. Finally, in, in exasperation, the Japanese formation broke up and they headed a different direction. And, and as they did so, Butch O'Hare then flew his plane back to the Lexington. He landed, you know, his plane was all torn up. And they not only told the story, but they had a wing camera on, or a, a camera on his wing. And so they were able to, t- to see the whole thing play out. And what they found is that he, in that one, th- in one attack, he uh, shot down five Japanese bombers and did damage to others. And he literally saved an aircraft carrier from what could have been disastrous. He actually, for what he did there, he became the first Navy ace of World War II, and he was the first naval aviator to receive the Congressional Medal of Honor. Now, about a year later, he was killed in in a combat at the age of 29. But his hometown remembered him and sought to honor him. So today, if you go to Chicago, you know the airport is O'Hare International Airport. It's named after Butch O'Hare. In fact, if you look at this, you can go right in between uh, Terminals 1 and 2. There's a big memorial, you know, about Lieutenant Commander Edward uh, Butch O'Hare, and it has his, uh, you know, replica of his plane there, and it tells his story. And so here's a hero. Well, that's one story. The other story is about someone who you wouldn't think is a hero. It's, It's a guy, likewise, from Chicago, someone named Easy Easy Eddie. Easy Eddie was the lawyer for Al Capone. Capone was the mob leader that ran the city of Chicago. Nothing heroic. He was all known for, you know, bootlegging and prostitution and murder. And 
And, and Easy Eddie was Capone's lawyer for a reason. He was a very good lawyer. He kept Capone out of jail. He was able to, you know, to avoid all the legal problems. And therefore, he was very well paid. He's incredibly wealthy. And in that, he lived the high life. He, you know, provided for his family and, and uh, seldom thought about what he was doing. But he did have a soft spot. He had a child, and his son grew, as his son began to grow, Eddie started to realize that, yes, he could provide his son all the benefits, all the wealth and riches that his lifestyle provided, but he couldn't provide him an example. In fact, what happened is that he started to try to teach his son right and wrong. And here you think, okay, this is a mob boss. Why is he trying to teach the wrong? Well, he wanted his son to live a life of integrity. He wanted his son to rise above his own example as living as a mob lawyer. But the more that he tried to teach him, the more that he realized that what he was saying was being undermined by his actions. He could give him all the things in the world except a good name and a good example. How important is it that dads live a good example? How important is that? You know, a lot of times when we think of a dad, we think of provision, and we think, well, we need to do the things, buy the things, make sure our kids are well-fed and clothed, and, and if we could buy things like, you know, extras and an education, boy, that's great. But can a man like Easy Eddie, who provided everything material for his son, but lived a life that, of a life of a criminal, could he be a good dad? And what if he's looking at this and saying, okay, well, I want to become a good dad, and, and if we've failed in the past, can we be a good dad when our past includes all kinds of failures? Now, I talk about dads, not only because of the story, but because of the passage we're looking at today specifically calls out dads. Now, both parents are vital in raising children, and the principles taught in the Bible apply to both moms and dads. But when we look at this passage in Ephesians 6, verse 4, what we find is that God calls out men particularly to step up and take the lead in parenting our children. Look at it again. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, I think this does apply in a sense to both men and women. But here God specifically calls out dads. A couple verses earlier in verse 1, it talks about children obey your parents. It uses a more broad word, but here he specifically calls out dads. Now, when I say that God is calling out dads to take the spiritual lead, that ultimately the primary responsibility falls upon them, I know that sounds strange to some. It may sound offensive to some. This idea that men have this primary role and, and uh, you know, people are going to respond negatively to, to that. And a lot of people say, well, spiritual, it's, it's not us. It's, well, I take them to church, and when they're little, it's the you know, children's pastor's job. And when they get older, it's the youth pastor's job. And, and beyond that, it's, you know, mom will take care of it. And a lot of times we think spiritual especially, we kind of put that off to mom. But God's clear. He, he says, no, the primary responsibility rests upon dads. That means not that men, mom aren't, moms aren't involved. No, they are involved. But ultimately, God's going to come to men first. And sometimes men have to step, or women have to step up because men haven't. And, and boy, I, I applaud moms that are doing that, but I want to challenge men. God calls you to step up first. God is going to hold us accountable first to how well we train our children. Now, again, it's common to think that it's moms that make the biggest difference. Um, but let me even show you some research 
couple of different, and there's actually numerous ones of these, but let me just point out two that show the impact that dads make specifically. There was a study done by Promise Keepers and Baptist Press a number of years ago, and it says that if a father does not go to church, even if the wife does, but the father doesn't attend, then only one out of 50 children on average will grow up to be a regular church attender as an adult. But if the father does attend church regularly, regardless of what the mom does, then it's between two-thirds and three-quarters of the children will be a regular church attender as an adult. So it's the dad's example that is the most important thing, the most powerful thing. Another survey found that if a child is the first one in a family to accept Christ, that there's a, a three to four percent chance that, that the rest of the family eventually will follow that child and become followers of Christ likewise. And so there's times that we do outreach. We pray that God would use that. Now, on the other hand, it says, okay, what if it's the mom? If the mom accepts Christ first, research says that it's about a 17% chance that the rest of the family will follow the mom into, into the faith. How about a dad? If the dad accepts Christ first, it's a 93% chance that the rest of the family will follow the dad into the faith. And man, I want you to see that God calls us to this, and research shows that it's in, the impact that we make is huge. And the scary thing we've got to realize is that you cannot choose not to have that impact. You will have the impact. That's not negotiable. The only question is, what will be the, the kind of impact you make? Will it be a, a positive impact or a negative impact? You can be intentional about trying to teach your children spiritual truth and have that intentional a positive impact being the good example, or you could just, through your failure, be a bad example that they will follow. Now, let me speak directly even to men here. Men, God has called you to be the spiritual leaders in your home. We saw several weeks ago about with your wives, and specifically here, he's called you to be the spiritual leader of your kids, and your kids need you. They're depending on you. You cannot pass on this. Either you take up the challenge and succeed, or you're going to ignore it, and you're going to fail, and your kids are going to pay the price. But if you're going to take up the challenge, I don't want to soft pedal this, it's going to be hard. This is not an easy challenge. This is not something that comes easy to us or natural to us. You're not going to know what to do many times. Or there are going to be times that you step up to lead and you're going to say, I might get it wrong. And what if I get it wrong? And you're going to risk rejection from your kids. You're going to risk rejection from your wife. And, and you're stepping up and you're, going to, you're taking risks. It's hard. But don't avoid it because it's hard. Guys, man, you've got to man up. We've got to step up to this. I mean, think about it. What do children do? Children avoid hard things. See, do we want to be the child that's avoiding hard things, or do we understand that as men, we don't necessarily go look for hard things, but when a hard thing comes up, we're going to be the warrior. We're going to step into that because that's what men do. That's what God calls us to. And God has called, up to, called us to step up, to take the lead, to do the hard thing because God has given you that role as a man, and you can't avoid it. And there is a price to pay. There is hard work, and there is you know, research of this, and there's taking risks and the risk of rejection. But men will be willing to step up and pay the price because that's what God has called us to. Now, are you willing to do that? I hope so. And even if you're saying, I'm not sure what that looks like, well, next week we're going to even try to give you more resources to say, here's how you do that. Here's how can we help you and, and to succeed in that. And you might say, well, I'm not sure. Really. Well, just start doing something. And, and next week, again, we're going to give you great resources to help you know how to start. But even as we start, 
there's a warning here as well. See, Ephesians 6, 4 gives us a challenge, but it also gives a unique warning to men. Look again. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, and, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So we're called to bring them up, to take the lead, but also there's a warning against provoking or exasperating our children. And the idea here is that, you know, that we can you know, provoke them to anger, we can exasperate them in a sense that they you know, get exasperated by the way that we're leading. Now, in this, I'm thinking, okay, why is this distinctive way to men? And, and again, I think it applies, we're gonna come back there, there's a broader application but one of the things is that I've reflected on that, I was thinking about a month or so ago, we were looking at, in the context of marriage, how God has created men and women differently. We have different needs. And one of the things that we talked about there is that a man's core need is to be respected and honored. You know, wives, respect your, your husbands. And part of the reason for that, as we talked about several weeks ago, is that, is that men are by nature self-critical. We're really critical about ourselves. You know, most men, if you ask me, what did I get done today or what did I fail at, it's easier for me to tell you what I failed at. That's just the way that we think as men. We're very, very self-critical. And because of that, you know, we won't talk about it. We won't ever admit the weakness. We try to hide it. We won't ask for help because we're afraid if somebody sees that, you know, they're going you know, to reject us and, and they're going to, you, know, um, you know, beat us up on it. And so what we desperately need is wives that honor their husbands, not wives that are going to mock them and constantly bring up the failures. No, a wife who knows it, but instead of you know, pointing out nagging to say, I believe in you. I believe that you can become this and someone who honors, not somebody that ignores the problem, but somebody that honors and builds up. Now, how does that apply to parenting? See, unfortunately for, for men, this can play out in a negative way. Now, the positive of it is that because we're critical, we can look at our kids and we can say, you can do better, we can challenge it. And men are the kinds of ones that are challenging the kids to step up and to do better and, and to move forward. But that motivation can become discouraging for our kids. And it happens when we focus on the needs to improve almost at exclusively. We're always talking about, here's what you need to do, and we're never celebrating their growth or their success. So for example, this is really common, you know, we'll, we'll, kids will come home and, boy, you've got, you know, four A's and two B's. Well, let's talk about the B's. How can you pull those up? We don't celebrate the A's, we're talking about the B's. Or, you know, we're in the sports field and, okay, great, you know, you got three hits and you struck out once and, well, let's talk about the strikeout. Why did you strike out? Or the jobs, you know, you came and, and we did this, and, well, let's, well you, you know, you did this job, but, you know, let's talk about the part you didn't do well. And what can happen is it's exasperating to our kids because we fail to give them the affirmation and love and approval they desperately long for. And they need it from both parents, but there's, even, there's a deep, deep need for their dad's approval and their praise. That's something that is built into our kids. They need to hear that from us. In fact, if you have young kids, we can illustrate this. If you have young kids, and I don't know, Todd, if they're doing any kind of craft or drawing today, but if they are, when you go to pick up your kids, what they're going to do, they're going to they're show you what they did. Hey, mom, dad, especially, dad, look what I did. Look at my drawing. Now, why are they doing that? Because they want your approval. They want to show you what they did, and they want to hear, good job, I'm proud of you. That's something that's deeply rooted in them. The only difference when they're little is that they're more honest about it. They need it just as badly as they get older. Let me give you another illustration from someone who suffered from the lack of this. And many of you might remember a famous pop star from back, you know, generate, you know, 10, 20 years ago, Michael Jackson. I mean, he was the most famous singer of, you know, of, of um, you know, the 90s and, and uh, you know, he's top of the music industry. 
And while he was very successful there, his personal life was a total disaster. Now, you don't think of Michael Jackson as being a scholar, but in 2001, he was going to have an honorary doctorate at Oxford University. And as part of that, he spoke at the graduation ceremony, and in speaking, he uh, talked some about his dad. And let me read what he said. He said, when I was young, I wanted more than anything to be a typical little boy. I wanted to build tree houses, to have water balloon fights, to play hide and seek with my friends, but fate had it otherwise. My father seemed intent, above all else, on making us a commercial success. But oh, what I wanted was a dad. I wanted a father who showed me love, and my father never did that. Which I have to wonder, in the midst of all his commercial success, to what degree was his personal life and the disaster that that was an outgrowth of this little boy that was a longing for a dad to say, I'm proud of you, I love you. But a dad who never could, in spite of the fact that he was incredibly successful commercially. Men, we've got to be intentional in firming our kids. We've got to show them love and praise their success. It doesn't mean that we can't point out the areas that they can grow. We should do that. That's part of our wiring. That's part of what we bring to the table. But don't get so focused on that that you push without affirming. Now, this is a challenge that I think is distinct to men in the sense that there's a distinct way that we can go wrong, but there's also a sense that it's broad, you know, broad instruction, I think, to all that are involved in raising our kids. That includes moms and dads and grandparents. And, and, and so we've got to say, okay, well, how do we understand what this is telling us not to do? What are ways that we can provoke and aggregate our, uh, aggravate our children that we're supposed to avoid? Again, even in understanding what this is teaching, you know, Ephesians 6, 4 says, fathers do not provoke your children to anger. And, and, and to understand this, there's another passage that says almost the same thing. Scripture interprets Scripture. So there's another passage in Colossians that says almost the same thing, but it uses a different word than provoking our children to anger. Look what it says, Colossians 3, 21. Fathers, do not aggravate your children or they will become discouraged. And it's specifically talking about how we teach and discipline. And, and the message has a paraphrase. It puts it this way. Uh, Parents, don't come down too hard on your children or you'll crush their spirits. And the idea is that sometimes we can try so hard to control their behavior that we control their behavior, but we crush their spirits. We're too strict. We're too hard. And, and we need to realize in the middle of this that our discipline, our instruction, it isn't just about behavior. It isn't about, as we've seen throughout the whole book of Ephesians, God isn't concerned primarily about our behavior. He's concerned about our heart, our character, who we are. And so as we try to now teach our children, we need to realize that the goal of discipline is to shape their heart, not just their behavior. And that's easier to do the behavior. The heart is much harder to shape. To do that, we've got to take time to teach, you know, not only right and wrong, but the wise be behind the behavior. Not only to correct them when they do something wrong, but to praise them to do what's right, because we're trying to build positive character. But how do we get this wrong? What are some ways that we can unintentionally you know, frustrate our kids. Well, let me give you three. One way is that when we discipline out of anger. Now, the hard part is we all do this far too often. Because what happens is that, you know, our, our children are doing something, we get frustrated, and then we blow up, and, and, and we discipline out of anger, we respond out of anger. But when we do that, we've got to realize what we're communicating to our kids is that our discipline isn't coming from a heart of love. In fact, when you think about what are we communicating, we're saying, you've bothered me. The fact that I am got angry, our discipline is saying, 
unintentionally, the goal of this is that I want you to change your behavior so you make my life better, so you don't frustrate me as much. And so we're communicating that our, it's our, the, the goal is our benefit as a parent, not necessarily a love for the health and the growth of our children. They're doing something that bothers us, and we want to make them stop so that we feel better. No, we've got to realize, no, as parents, our frustration and anger should never be the cause of discipline. And that may mean at times, if you get frustrated and get to, you know, walk away. Don't respond out of anger. Walk away. Take a minute. Calm down and think, okay, what am I supposed to do here? Now, another way we can frustrate our kids is when we're inconsistent in our discipline. Uh, We should be very clear both in our expectations and the consequences of breaking the rules. You know, a great principle in in discipline is the hot stove principle. You know, that you say, here's a hot stove. If you touch it, you're going to be burnt. You know, here's what's wrong, and here's the consequence if it happens. Think about God's word. Is God clear about what's right and wrong? Yeah. I mean, you have the Ten Commandments. You have the teaching, and it's very clear. It's not like, well, you need to guess this. No, it's clear. God's clear. And we should try to be so likewise. You know, it's... We understand from our own, ex- our own experience how frustrating it would be if, if we had instructions that weren't clear. Let me illustrate it, all right? Let's say you're driving home after church. And as you're driving home, you know, go down the road and you see a si- speed limit that says 25 miles an hour. So I haven't seen that one before. Uh, but then you go another 50 yards and there's another one that says 55 miles an hour. And then you go another 50 yards and there's another one that says 15. And then there's another one, another 50 yards that says 65. And you're sitting there, what in the world is going on? You know, what, you know, you're frustrated with this. And so you're not sure what to do. So you go at your own speed. You know, you go, well, based on experience, based on this is what I think is right and appropriate for this, you know. But next thing you know, you hear a siren going on behind you. And the policeman pulls you over and they say, you know, do you know how fast you're going? And he says, well, I kind of have an idea, but I'm not even sure what the speed limit is here. He says, well, the speed limit's 15 and you were going 60. And the punishment for that is four years in prison, Summit County Jail. You're like, four years in jail? I had no idea that was a penalty. And he says, well, that's the penalty for today because I'm in a bad mood. Yesterday I was in a good mood. I'd let you off. But today I'm in a bad mood, so today it's four years in jail. And you're like, what in the world? You're, you know, you're judging me based on your moods? My friends, that's what we can do with our kids. That same thing. They're not sure what the speed limit is, and, and they can do the same thing, and one day they get off, and next thing you know, they're thrown in jail, and, and they don't know, and it's frustrating. It's exasperating to them. You know, even something as basic as, you know, we, you know it's, we have little kids. If you have young kids, and you say, well, go play in your room, you know, go color, and they're thinking, what, what are the limitations? You know, color on my, my sister's face. You know, what can I color? And so they go, and they color, and you go in the room, and next thing you know, they have done artwork on the wall. Now, it's really easy to blow up as a parent. How could you do that? Have you ever told them not to draw on the wall? Now, is it possible that you've told them in the past, hey, go color, anything blank, color on, and I'm going to come and I'm going to praise you. So they look at, here's a really big, you know, big blank canvas. They expect mom and dad's approval. If you've never told them not to, you can't suddenly say, well, I'm going to praise you for when you colored on this paper, but now I'm going to you know, get and punish you for coloring on something else when I never told you you shouldn't. It's not only that, but another application, if you're married, it's vital that we be on the same page as husband and wife, that we think through, okay, what are we going to do? What are the rules? What are the consequences? And you have to be together. You have to have consistency between what mom and dad say are wrong and what the consequences are. You've got to do that together. Or other words, otherwise, we're exasperating them. 
One last way that we can do this is when we can be overly harsh or critical. And, um, and, and here's one of the problems that we can have as parents, is that we see our kids do something wrong and we feel we have to correct them. So we have to tell them, no, that's wrong, here's a consequence or whatever. And, and, but what happens is that our interaction accidentally falls into primarily correcting them. We have to correct the bad behavior and we don't have to acknowledge when they've done the right thing. As the result, the majority of the attention, you know, if you're really talking to them, it's, well, you've got to do this, you did this wrong. And, and all they hear us talk about is their mistakes, their failures, where, we've, where they've let us down. Now, we've got to realize that if the goal is shaping the heart, if he, for those that have been with us, you know, throughout the, the study of Ephesians, remember that in Ephesians 4 specifically, he said, okay, God's shaping our heart. He gives us guidelines. And his guidelines were take off the old, put on the new. It's not only don't do these bad things, do these right things, develop this good character trait. So therefore, as parents, we should be even more focused on developing the positive character traits than we are in correcting the negative. Now, there are times we need to correct the negative. But don't fall into the, you know, the trap of making that the only time that you interact with your kids on moral issues. Look for the positive. Praise the positive. Encourage them for what they've done right. That's part of shaping that heart, of encouraging them. See, now, there's things that we're told not to do. Don't provoke your children to anger. But then as we go to the second half, it tells us what we should do, what we should pursue, that God's positive instruction to parents. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so when we look at this, okay, what are we called to do in this discipline and instruction of the Lord? It isn't arbitrary. It isn't like, well, this is what I felt now. It's, no, there are principles and truths that as I try to guide you as a, as a parent, I'm going to bring you back to God's word. And the discipline isn't based on, you know, uh, if you do something that embarrasses me or causes me trouble. And no, I'm going to try to do this based on, on, on consistent principles of what's right and wrong. And what does it mean to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord? Well, first of all, when it says bring them up, it has the idea of coaching, of, of nurturing, that we want to nurture them toward maturity. See, even bringing them up, it has this idea of nurture and, 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 and to feed. Um, it brings to matu- bring to maturity through cultivation. So if we could go back a few verses, Ephesians 5.29, it says that a man feeds and cares for his own body. It's the same word there. And we've got to realize that exasperating is kind of like, oh, here's what you do. Nurturing is patient. It's loving. It's understanding. It's understanding that God has created our children and there's a, there's a fragility to them. And we've got to be careful and, and, and um, intentional in the way that we mold them. Remembering that our goal is shaping their hearts. It's not just about changing their behavior. We don't want Pharisees that keep a bunch of rules and their hearts are wrong. So it's not just about telling them the rules that they should keep or the things they shouldn't or shouldn't do. We want to help raise mature adults that learn to understand why something is right or wrong. So first of all, nurture them toward maturity. Second, train them towards godliness. But it calls us to bring them up in the discipline of the Lord. And this idea of discipline has the idea of instruction. But it's not just teaching, it's instruction with correction an educational discipline. Now, in many in our culture, if I talk about discipline, um, that's offensive. You know, we shouldn't discipline our kids, and that's an offensive idea. And part of that is cultural and theological, philosophical. See, for many in our culture, our culture says, well, children are born morally good, 
And so what we need to do, because they're morally good, is we need to encourage them and give them self-worth and help them discover their own, you know, their own, own way. We need to help them figure out who they want to be. And we never tell them no. We just tell them whatever you think, that's, you know, that's good. But the Bible teaches that our kids are born with a sin nature. And so there's a place of encouragement. There's also a place of, of discipline, of instruction, of correction, because they're often going to want to do things that are wrong. And we need to teach them not only they're wrong, but we need to, to do so in part through consequences. At times, well, if you do wrong, there's going to be a negative consequence. There's going to be some discomfort as a result. Again, some people would say, well, that's wrong. discipline. Well, it's abusive. Well, can discipline be abusive? Yeah. But the answer to abusive discipline is not no discipline. It's proper godly discipline. And we need to recognize that's part of what God called us to do. Now, the goal of discipline is not punishment. It's always corrective. It's always teaching. And so when we look at this, it's a way of, of, of moving, of educating. But it's an idea throughout, throughout the Bible that there is a place of discipline, which means un, you know, unpleasant consequences. So you can take an example like in Proverbs where it says, you know, whoever spares the rod hates his son but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. There's a sense where we're going to go through and run towards the you know, difficulty and the painful part of that because that's part of what it means to love. But as we do that, we're trying to shape Christ-like character, and it means that discipline has to be distinctively molded to our, not only our child, his personality, but also to the offense. So for example... When you look at this, you say, okay, there's different things that our kids can do. We need to make sure that it fits the, the correction fits the offense. And let me give you three different kinds of behavior and show you that these three different kinds of, of behavior require three different kinds of discipline. The, the first is I'm going to call, um, is going to call ignorant, ignorant behavior. And this is more common when our kids are really young. You know, there are things that we might think that they should know are wrong, but if we've never told them they're wrong then if they do it, it's more our fault because we've never instructed them. You know, example of this is that a number of years ago, my brother and sister went out to eat at a, at a restaurant, and they had a son who uh, was very curious, and he saw this, this, um, you know, this lever, and he says, I wonder what this does, and he pulls the lever, it was fire alarm, and next thing you know, there's this fire alarm through the whole restaurant, the whole restaurant has to empty out for half an hour, they call the fire department, and from their perspective, this is a giant deal. I mean, they are seriously embarrassed. You know, everybody in the restaurant's mad at them. Now, you've got to look at that. Is that a, is that a major offense? Now, a couple questions. Is it wrong? Yes. Is it wrong to pull a fire alarm? Yeah, you shouldn't go around pulling fire alarms. But the second question is, did he know it was wrong? No. I mean, the fact you give your kids toys where they're pulling switches and pushing buttons and things like that, and you're saying, oh, it's great, you're learning that. So he goes to this new place, and he says, oh, here's a switch, and it's red, so that should be noticeable. So he pulls it. That's something that's done out of ignorance. He's taught that he should pull handles. And, and some parents could say, because it impacted me, therefore I'm going to punish. But we've got to realize, no, it's ignorant behavior that what you do is you instruct, but you don't punish. Well, a second type of behavior is what I'm going to call uh, uh, foolish or careless behavior. Now, this is something that needs to be corrected, but it's a matter of immaturity or irresponsibility more than it is of an issue of rebellion. So let's take an example. Anybody with kids have trouble getting them to do chores around the house? Okay, 
Now, if I have my kids do chores, is that disobeying us? Is that rebelling if they don't? No, I think usually it's more, you know, it's irresponsibility. And so I look at this and I say, okay, here I've got to correct but not punish. And the correction should somehow fit the offense. So, for example, if I have my kids, we've done this many times, you know, they, they have their job to do the dishes, they didn't do the dishes well, and, uh, and at times, you know, it's like, why didn't I do them? I'm going to do these dishes. No, let's go up and wake them up from bed, and we're going to have them come down and do the dishes right. And they're going to have the dishes the next couple nights because that's the natural consequence for if you didn't do it well, we're going to teach you to do it. And they would say, oh, I didn't know, I, you know, I forgot, I didn't mean to forget, and I'm sorry, I'll do it better next time. I'm not mad at you. Now, this will tell them, I'm not mad at you, but you know what? It's obvious that you're not sure how to do this right, so what we're going to do is we're going to give you dishes for the next couple nights to help you learn. And because you forgot, when you do it the next couple nights, it will remind you of how important it is to do this right. So that's not discipline in the sense of you know, punishment, but it's correction that fits the consequences. Because the issue isn't rebellion, it's foolishness. But at the same time, as a parent, I need to teach. Now, the most serious problem is when it gets into disobedient or rebellious behavior. It's an act of willful disobedience. Now, a lot of times, this may seem to be a small issue. It may be talking back. It may be a little thing that they disobey. And we can you know, go it over because it isn't nearly as big as pulling a fire alarm. But we need to realize this is the real issue. It's this decision to disregard your authority, to disrespect you. And at that point, that's where we need to have a discipline. And the discipline is the heart stove principle. If you cross this line, you know, if you, you, know, if you dis disregard, you know, and with young kids, we'll even tell, you know, are you, you know, well, don't do that. Are you going to obey or disobey? If you disobey, here's the consequence. When they get older, here's the consequence. And we need to address that as a serious issue. And, and at the, you know, as soon as they cross the line, here's, you know, here's, the, here's the response. Now, the problem is, how many times do our kids cross lines that we didn't anticipate? So what do we do then? Now, here's what we often will do. If we can think about it, let's think about it, tell them beforehand. But when, what happens is we tend to, how many times have our kids do something and we just blow up and we're, I can't believe you did that. You know, you're grounded for six months. You can't leave your room. You can't do anything. And we blow up our kids. And then what happens? We go to bed and we're like, oh, man, I overreacted. What am I going to do with my kids? I can't say, believe I said that. I don't want to ground them for six months. So we can't sleep all night because we're worried about what we did, Right? and then we've got to go back the next day and fix it. Especially as you get older, here's a clue. What you do is you tell your kids what you did was really wrong, and you don't need to tell them the discipline right then. Walk away. Calm down. Here's a beautiful thing. You're going to calm down, and you're going to go to bed, and you're going to have time to think about it, to time to reflect on it, to talk to your spouse, come up with the right conclusion. You'll sleep well. You know what's wonderful? Your kids won't sleep at all. They're going to be up all night wondering what's going to happen. They're going to be worrying about what the consequences are going to be and come back in the morning. And that's an incredible teaching tool. Don't overreact. You know, what we need to realize is that we've got to be, you know, realize that there's, it's disobedient, rebellious behavior. There's a consequence. Think it through and realize that we're teaching them and the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And, and part of that is it's teaching in that instruction. It's coming back and instructing them, this is what God's Word says. This is why this is wrong. This is the why behind it. And it starts with verbal instruction. That's part of it. But even more than that, it's our modeling. It's our example. It's what we live out before them and the example of our own lives. 
See, again, we can just discipline wrong behavior or teach right behavior, and, but we've got to teach them the why behind the behavior. And then beyond that, to say, and this is what it looks like. And we show them this is what it looks like by our example. See, we've got to realize that if we're saying one thing to our kids and then we're living something differently, what we're in a sense doing is that we're saying, here's what I say that I believe, but you can look at my life and you can see what I really believe. And I don't believe what I say I believe because I'm not submitting to God in my own life. No, my friends, we've got to realize your most powerful instruction is your example. And if, you're, if your lifestyle disagrees with your, your, with your words, with, your behavior, with what you're saying, see, your kids will not be able to hear your words because your example is speaking too loud. Now, are we perfect? None of us are. But part of that is to say, in this example, part of my example is coming and I mess up, and you know what, I said that and was wrong. Boy, I used that word. I shouldn't have done that. And I, I overreacted. You know, you saw me interact, you know, lose my temper with you or with your wife or with, with your mom. And, and part of that example is an example of grace because our kids aren't perfect. They have a sin nature, and so do we. So the example doesn't mean that I never make mistakes. It's that I learn to do what's right, and then when I make mistakes, I give them the example of surrendering to before God and saying, this is the way that we grow. Deuteronomy 6, a great passage. And what does it say? How do we teach? Not by taking them into the classroom, but by teaching them when we get up and we walk through the day, we walk through life, teaching what it looks like to live these principles out. In the beginning, I started telling you about two stories. The second was about Easy Eddie, Al Capone's lawyer. Being Capone's lawyer brought many rewards. And he could do all these things that he would provide for his family, for his kids, all these things that he could buy. But as his son started to grow older, he realized there were certain things he couldn't buy. He couldn't teach him to be a man of integrity and honor. He would try to teach him by his words what was right and wrong, but the problem is that his example was screaming so loud that his words were being drawn out. And he realized the most important thing that he could do was to give his son a good name and a good example. But it wasn't too late. See, he made a difficult decision that offering his son a good name and a good example was more, more important than all the things he could lavish on him. And he decided to take an incredibly radical action to try to do that. He decided to go to the authorities and to talk about Al Capone, become a witness, to try to clean up his tarnished name by doing what was right. And he knew that witnessing against the mob was an incredibly dangerous thing to do. The cost could be his life but he wanted to, to kind of say, this is where I draw the line, and from here on in, I want my son to know that I chose to do the right thing. And so he did testify. And within a year, Easy Eddie's life ended in a blaze of gunfire in a lonely Chicago street. But in the process, he had given his son the greatest gift he could give, that of a life of integrity, that decided to say, here, I'm not only going to say what's right, I'm going to now pay the price and do what's right. Now, if you remember in the beginning, I said that this was a story about two stories that were related. And the other one was Butch O'Hare, you know, the great World War II hero. And you say, how in the world are these related? Well, what you've got to realize is Easy Eddie O'Hare was Butch O'Hare's dad. And it was Butch O'Hare that was the son that he was looking at and saying, this is the son that I want to teach what is right, teach to have integrity. And do you think it's possible 
that when you hear about Butch O'Hara, this great hero that has been honored by a city now for, you know, for ever since World War II, that it's possible that he learned about integrity and heroism and courage by seeing a dad who was willing to say, I'm going to do what's right even at the risk of my own life. Yes, his dad had fallen short in so many ways, but his dad said, okay, this is where I draw the line, and from here on in, I want to do what's right. And he saw the impact and the character that it developed in his son. My friends, even as we talk about this, I realize that God calls us to this. There are many of us that are sitting there saying, man, I've fallen short. I've, been, you know, I've not been the dad that my kids need. And I've made this mistake and that mistake. I've talked to people after the first service. And, you know, man, I've got the incredible regrets. I beat myself up all the time. See, it's never too late to come and say, I want to do what's right. And even part of that might be coming to our kids and saying, you know, I was wrong, and I've asked God to forgive me, I ask you to forgive me. Be the example of that brokenness, of that repentance. Let that be the example, and your kids will learn from that. The fact of the matter is that none of us are perfect parents. We pray that our kids continue to be on the right path, but it's not because we've been the perfect parents who have made no mistakes. We have made mistakes. But ultimately, it's God's grace in our kids' life that is the most important thing that is greater than the mistakes that we've made. And God calls each one of us as parents to say, fathers, step up and play this role. Fathers and mothers, do this. You know, bring your kids up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. This is hard. It goes against the culture. It takes effort. But even if you've walked away from that, it's never too late to turn. It's never too late to start. And the fact is that if we start, God uses that testimony, that faithfulness to shape the lives of our kids or our grandkids. But the question is, will we stand up and say, God, I want to be that kind of parent. God, I want you to, I I need you to come. And even by grace where I've fallen short, I give it to you. And I need you by grace to come and, and overwhelm where I've fallen short because it's not too late to see my child's character changed by God's grace. God, I want to lay down the step. I got little kids, and I want to lay down the commitment today. I want to lay it down with my spouse here that that here we are, that God, I want to be that kind of parent. Give me the grace to do that. And that is it for this week's message. If you have any questions about the message, about Community Church, or who Jesus Christ is, send us a text to 330-400-3242. You can learn more about our events and community groups online at ccpl.life slash connect. There, you can also send in a prayer request. We would love to pray for you. Have a blessed Lord's Day, and we'll see you next week.